This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hello and welcome to the Football Digest podcast, talking you through this week in football. And I'm delighted to say this week, joining us is Andy Dunn, Chief Sports Writer of the Daily Mirror, Matt Dunn, Head Honcho at The Express, and a very special guest uh, appearance uh, for our Merseyside man, Dave Maddock, to talk all things Merseyside derby. And of course, lots more besides as well, because we're going to have a kickoff, I think, looking back on England and what happened this week. Um, as I say, a mention uh, and also a serious look at the Merseyside derby. What a fixture that will be uh, this weekend, I think. We're also going to potentially see, aren't we, the debut of the returning hero, Gareth Bale, and get the definitive last word on Project project Big Picture, whether that can still survive and whether that is going to resurface in another form or keep going. Very interesting developments over the last few days on that. But I am, as I say, going to kick off with a look back um, on England. Um, three of us were there at Wembley. England's um, uh, first defeat, first competitive defeat at Wembley for, for, for two years. Um, and then also, I think, only the second defeat, actually, in about 37 competitive games. So, so really uh, at Wembley. So not, um, you know... Kept in context, not not the worst sort of uh, international fortnight ever. But I did think, I don't know what you guys all thought, it was a bit of a deflating experience, bearing in mind just three days earlier, England had beaten world number one team, Belgium. Um, but in typical England fashion, from the highs to the lows, and now feels a little bit flat with Harry Maguire and everything that goes with with the red card, uh, sort of uh, skirmishes at the end with Rhys James. So I'll kick off with you, Andy. What what did you what did what do we learn over the international break, and what do we take out of um, particularly that that game with Denmark? I think we learned quite a lot, lot John. Uh, first of all, I'm just just picking up there on the the highs of beating Belgium, which is absolutely correct other than the fact that we need to consider that England were actually very fortunate to beat Belgium. Belgium were the better side for long parts of that game. And obviously we're undone um, by uh, a very harsh penalty um, from which Rashford equalised. And of course, Mason Mount's deflected winner. Um, But it was a good win. But I think what we learned overall, several things. First of all, never mind Harry Maguire last night. We've got an issue really if Southgate is going to stick with his system of three central defenders or a back three, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, what is the right personnel for those three? Um, you know, which combination do you have? I think that's that's an issue. I mean, Carl Walker continues to be used there. He did well against Belgium. Um, last night was a difficult night, I think, for him. Um, so I think that's one issue that we need to, to deal with. And, of course, one of the abiding image for me, probably the abiding image of all three games, um, was at Wembley last night, late on in the game, when um, I looked down into the stands there and I saw Jack Grealish sat there, um, wrapping himself up, disappearing into his padded jacket, um, while everyone else warmed up and went on um, to try and help England. I think that is will be, um, you know, certainly Maguire's form is a talking point, but I think 
how do you fit Jack Grealish into this England team or how does Gareth Southgate fit him in will be one of the defining um, debates, I think, of this of this um, three-game get-together. Don't forget, he started against Wales, was outstanding against Wales, didn't finish that game as it happens, but was arguably man of the match, you know, went round Wembley with a swagger. Then, after the game, spoke in of his exhilaration at making that full debut at Wembley, spoke about wanting to make people happy, spoke about wanting to play in the same way, joyous way as Gaza did, and gave everyone a lift, and we haven't seen him since. Yeah, and that, and that, and I understand Southgate trusting people, I understand understand the system he's playing, but I think we will all come away from that and think, you know, quite how did that happen, especially especially last night when, you know, England needed um, the goal later on and you would have thought Grealish would have caused them trouble and to foul. I think that, of all the issues, and I, again, I go back, I think that's the, the, the defensive thing is an issue, maybe the key bit is another issue, but I think that of how you fit Grealish, the man of the moment, into that team is is is, is the is the burning debate. Mm. Matt, Matt, does the does the three four three system make it difficult for Grealish to get into that team? Do, do you almost need to change the system yeah, for him? Very much, he does need to change the system for him if he wants to. I think it's a sign of where we are as a country and a generation of English football that we're having the same debate about Jack Grealish, with all due respect to him, that we've previous generations have had about players like Matthew Letizia and Glenn Hoddle. He's not of that calibre. He's not someone that you build a team around. He's not shown anything that says that Gareth Southgate should ditch everything he's done and build his team around him. But he is a sort of player that you can't play the current system, which has been bolted together through the lack of resources he's got. He's not got two good centre-backs to play a back four good enough to play back four, so he has to play back three. This is a team built of necessity, not luxury. And unfortunately, unless Grealish really steps it up a gear uh, and starts to take matches in the same way that, say, a Gareth Bale did before he left uh, Tottenham the first time, then you don't start building teams around him because I don't think he's at that level yet. Mm. Ste- so, just just well, one, one, one second there, John, if I may. Steps it up a gear. Steps it up again. He scored two and assisted three in a seven-two win over the over the champions. He was man of the match against Wales. I'd call, I'd call that stepping up again. I have to say, uh, it's produ- <laughs> one of the most iconic moments of the season <laughs> when, when, when he's got like, Virgil Van Dijk. Virgil Van Dijk, yeah, the, the best best defender in the world, frankly. But anyway, on, but, step it up, Jay. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm in the, I'm, hey. in the yeah, I'm with Andy hey, on this one. Fair. I'm afraid, Matt. I don't. Yeah. But, but but what I'm saying is, you can play a showreel of Matthew Tizier's greatest moments, and he wasn't good enough for Terry Venables, who was, um, you know, supposedly mm. one of the great. Uh, tacticians and football brains uh, of, of any generation. So yeah. these and can I just say great. we spent the last twenty years lamenting that? Yeah, no, absolutely. We couldn't find. We didn't do too badly in Euro '96, though, did we? No, no. Yeah, we didn't no. play bad football. In uh, no. the same way, we haven't done too badly in the World Cup without a player of that sort of nature. And the fact is, I don't think we go as far in tournaments without coping with the other frailties that we've got defensively, in particular just to accommodate a Jack Grealish figure. It'd be great to watch. I'm with you on that. It'd be fantastic. But I'm sure, you know, we might have the occasional flat track, you know, 3-0 against Wales. But I think we'd struggle against the really best teams to get him on the ball. Mm, yeah. Dave, I was just going to ask you about a player that you obviously see an awful lot of that 
you know, there's a big debate surrounding and swirling about, and I think that'll only intensify really because the common argument is, well, he's never let his country down despite the, the mistakes for Everton, and that's Jordan Pickford. Um, where, where do you where do you see it right now? Is is Jordan Pickford a you know a top class keeper? Is he a top class keeper struggling for form? Whereabouts is he? What's going on? Um, interesting question, actually, because um, I think Carlo Ancelotti is asking that question as well. He went out and signed the uh, the Swedish goalkeeper just on on deadline, and and he did that uh, after a quite a bad mistake against Brighton that that Pickford made. That sort of suggested to me I was at that game, and and I don't know whether I think most people would have seen it on match of the day or whatever, and it was a really, really, really bad error that seemed to suggest that a goalkeeper who's completely lacking in either confidence or concentration or perhaps a little bit of both. Um, and, I mean, it's interesting because the keeper Everton have signed, you wouldn't normally... No, he's, he was only... He was at uh, Roma, but he was only then... He was taken there as a number one to replace Alisson, actually, but never really did and then went out on loan to uh, Cagliari, I think. And... Um, his record is not that of a top-class keeper, but he's clearly been brought in to at least put pressure on Pickford. And I think Ancelotti, he is, he's, a, he's, a, he's a great manager. Uh, he's a nice guy, but he's also ruthless because you don't be manager of the clubs that he's managed without making some pretty tough decisions. And clearly, his, he is thinking that Pickford is a problem. And... Um, it would be interesting to see in the derby what happens. I think Pickford is bound to start, but, but you know, I wouldn't be totally out of the blue surprised if he doesn't because I think Ancelotti quite clearly it does have some questions about him. I think what, what will happen is Pickford will actually go back into the Everton team, but knowing that there's somebody there now who will replace him if, he, if, he, if his, his levels don't, don't, improve and I, I think going back to the original point of your question it's difficult to pick a goalkeeper for England when he's struggling for it for his um for his club and Southgate has steadfastly done that so far um there was a bit of confusion for for the for the penalty last night uh, I wouldn't particularly blame Pickford but it, it, it there, there was some confusion there and and you think how long before it does start impacting on 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 his his England position? Obviously, if it goes on with Everton and the Everton fans themselves are not backing him currently, mm-hmm. you know there could be there could be trouble. And I think, I mean, I think Southgate certainly has to look at that as Ancelotti is clearly doing now. Mm, yeah. What What do you think is the tipping point on it? What, why do you think he's suddenly? You know, because I mean, he's, he was outstanding 2018 World Cup, isn't it? And he's been a, you know, he has been reliable for for England, but it's just a, it feels like it's, it's sort of a yeah. gradual thing rather than you know. I mean, the thing is, it, even in matches, he's made some mistakes this season. He made some mistakes towards the end of last season, but even in those games, he also does some brilliant stuff. And there's no doubt, is that you know, he has real sort of quality as a keeper but but it's perhaps his consistency and the funny thing is the one thing Ancelotti is always going on about all the time at Everton is consistency and he keeps saying we're playing well but we need to do it consistently we're not 
And he said even this season, they've not been performing consistently through games. And I think, and I kind of get the impression, but, you know, that he's never said this directly, that he believes some of the inconsistency Everton have shown, and they've been very good this season, has been around the mistakes of the goalkeeper. And that perhaps is just creating a little bit of a lack of confidence amongst the, the defence and making them a little more edgy than he would like because he likes to build on defence. Um, so that's the question for for Pickford is is about that consistency and, and, and cutting out the mistakes and the lapses in concentration, really. Uh, but, you know, it can't continue without being addressed. That That's the thing you can't constantly have and we're going to get onto this when we talk about the derby but you can't have a goalkeeper who constantly makes mistakes because that then affects the defense and I think Pickford is getting towards that territory now where people are expecting mistakes and you know it's funny because I've seen it so much in the past David James at Liverpool was a great example once you get a reputation for making mistakes then every tiny mistake you make gets highlighted whereas a goalkeeper that doesn't can make mistakes. And 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 like Loris is a great example at Spurs. He makes mistakes, but because his reputation is mm. for to being a top class keeper, World Cup winner, etc., he kind of gets away with them. But as soon as you get to the point where Pickford is at now, you just don't get away with them any longer. And that causes, you know, pressure and problems. Yeah. Would be worse, by the way, if the fans were in. Much, much worse. Yeah, no, it's a great show. I, I, I must say, I'm found a member of the Hugo Lloris fan club. I think it's terrific, and sometimes gets a raw deal. But you know, it, it's um, it, it, you know, sometimes it's about reception is not well. But I mean, Pickford, great challenge, and another I have to say, facing major question marks. Andy is Harry Maguire now. I mean, to talk us through the last couple of appearances because. Frankly, I didn't think he was great against Belgium. He had he's had an absolute nightmare, you know, sending off um, against Denmark. He looks a player struggling on the back of a disastrous summer from a from a personal point of view. And then for the last game going into the camp was a six one home defeat in which you know he's complicit yeah. in that defeat against Tottenham. You know, where's yes. Harry Maguire and and what do you do, frankly, with Harry Maguire? You know, I also saw him, John, in, in Manchester United's first game of the season at home to Crystal Palace mm-hmm. when, when when he also didn't cover himself um, in glory. I, I agree with you. You know, Gareth Southgate last night said that he thought he was excellent against Belgium. I thought the whole defence struggled against Lukaku still in that first half against Belgium. I wouldn't say he made any, you know, obvious ricks, but I don't think I don't think he, he was particularly excellent. And obviously last night was just a disaster for him. You know, it's interesting. I think that... What's happened clearly is that Southgate um, picked him for the um, squad in September, um, and then, then of course, was almost forced into leaving him out of that squad. And I think felt guilty about leaving leaving him out of that squad. You know, Maguire's a favourite of his. He was an absolute rock for him at World Cup 2018. He likes him. Um, he's part of his leadership group, um, whatever that may be. Um, so he, he felt loyalty to him, and he felt guilty about dropping him for those games in September, um, as the court, you know, as the court case came to its conclusion. So I think he felt obliged to bring him back. He, he felt obliged to bring him back, but by bringing him back, he was ignoring, um, you know, he, he was, he, and by putting him back into the team, he was ignoring Maguire's club for. Um, and I just think, you know, there's a lot in the papers today, you know, and, and everyone's written very well about it, yourself included 
about the psychological um, impact, what must have had of him, had on him, what happened in Greece. You know, but I do think he's probably you know strong enough to deal with that. I think there might be a more basic um, explanation, and that is just that he's in an absolutely rotten run of form, and he's got no confidence. I mean, literally last night. I mean, never mind the, you know the sending off after only thirty minutes, thirty-one minutes. You know, his his other eight touches or whatever it was in the game were not much better than the two tackles that got him sent off. You know, he really was at a real low. And I do just think that, that, that that's where he's at at the moment. I just do think the players get like this, and he really is just struggling for form. You know, it's 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 like a batsman who can't lay bat on ball. You know, it, it's like a golfer who, who can't hold a putt. He's just literally in a situation now where where he he he, he just just doesn't he seems bereft of confidence. Doesn't know when to stick or twist in terms of you know. And that's why he got booked for that first challenge. Doesn't know when to stick or twist. Doesn't know when to intercept. Doesn't know when to stand off. Um, doesn't know when to commit. And I just think he's in an absolutely rotten run of form. And that happens. And and obviously the question going forward, I'm sure will be addressed over the next couple of days, is whether or not, um, you know, both club manager and national manager stick with him. I'm, I'm, I'm certain that Southgate will, as long as Solskjaer does. But, you know, don't forget, he's Manchester United captain. You know, and they haven't got that many options. I mean, they have got options, but not maybe good options. Mm. And England probably have... But again, in the same situation, they've got options, plenty of options, but maybe not great options. So it's a difficult one. Um, I personally, I mean, I personally at United, I think it's a big decision for Solskjaer. You know, he'll say, well, listen, you know, over, overall he's been great for us, which he has. But his form's been terrible at club level to start the season and was awful last night. Um, and it's what they pay the big bucks for, these managers, isn't it? To make the decision come Saturday whether or not he puts them out against Newcastle. I wouldn't personally. No, no, fair dues. Matt, just to finish up, just to round up on England, um, well, how do you think that, I mean, there's, I think quite rightly, to be honest, a few question marks being asked of Gareth Southgate about discipline. Um, England have given away three penalties in, in, their, in the first section of um, uh, Nations League games. Now had, uh, you know, three red cards as well after two last night. And then also, you know, Carl Walker's against um, uh, Iceland. We've had the COVID idiots. We've had Foden, we've had Greenwood. Gareth Southgate always so passionately defends, you know, uh, defending his players um, as he was about the COVID idiots. Have we got a bit of a disciplinary issue? Is, is, that, is that a concern moving forward? Uh, I think we've got a bit of a disciplinary issue within the team. Uh, which are individuals who see they're above the law um, in terms of the off-field stuff. The on-field stuff, as, as Andy said, we've got a centre-back with a poor first touch at the moment who gets into these challenges, uh, and I don't see how you can blame the manager for that. Um, the, in, in terms of the penalties, it wasn't a penalty, so that can be you know excused. That was just a moment of panic where Carl Walker's looking over his shoulder and wondering what his goalkeeper's doing there. Um, they were centre-back down and they didn't get the substitution on in time, uh, which perhaps was something to do with the England staff, but it's not a general problem. Um, I think with Southgate, he makes it clear how his disciplinary process works. Players are punished if they step out of line, and we've seen that with Foden and Greenwood. Um, and on the field, you know, someone needs to get hold of Reese James. His emotions are running high. Jordan Henderson tried to, just couldn't get hold of him quickly enough. Um, I don't think it's a generic problem. Uh, it's just a run of these things that are going wrong with 
you know, some of the stresses that and of the expectation, perhaps, that the players are being put under on the pitch. Um, and there's a few cracks appearing, but I, I don't see how South, Southgate's approach sort of helps uh, make that any worse. Um, and if anything, I think the players know where they stand uh, and that's only going to be positive going forward. Mm, yeah, fair enough. Uh, Dave, I'm going to I'm going to come to you. Uh, really, our main man on on Merseyside, and j- just really looking ahead to 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 the Merseyside derby. It's the first one that I can remember for quite a long time, where maybe just maybe Everton go into it with a bit of a chance. What do you think? <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, that's being a bit unfair. They've, they've been into <laughs> yeah, sorry, with a with a chance, but I think what. Um, what you're abs- absolutely right in suggesting is that they go into it possibly as favourites in this 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 game, and and that, that is, I mean, it's a long time since that has happened. It's ten years, in fact. It's ten years this this October since they last beat Liverpool in any competition, and that was at Goodison in the league, um, and a two nil win when Arteta and Cahill scored. Arteta's now a manager of arrival to both clubs, so that shows you how long ago it was. Um, but um, it's, it's interesting, actually, because um, I've been doing uh, a piece on it, and it's actually the last time Everton went into a Merseyside derby, top of the table, was in 1989, and it wow. was uh, late September 89. Um, and... Uh, they were top. Liverpool was second, in fact, back then. Um, and uh, Everton lost. <laughs> Liverpool went to the top of the table by winning and uh, stayed there and won the league that season. So, oh, actually, Everton did go back briefly to the top of the table later on in in, in the year. But Liverpool went on to win the league. So I don't know which omen you want to take. But um, Everton, the, the Everton... <sighs> The last time they had such a great start to the season was in 1970 when they won the league. Uh, and in fact, winning the first seven matches, <laughs> I think it's the first time in, in 120 years that they've done that because they've won three of these ridiculous uh, EFL Cup games as well. So, you know, it gives them an amazing record. Mm. Um, and, you know, they go in with with not just... Uh, big confidence, which obviously a run like that gives you, but also a bit of belief um, and organisation, which is the, the mark of Ancelotti. I, I, I mentioned that I was looking at the the sort of Everton Everton compared to you know the past, and and actually exactly a year ago, going into this weekend, Everton were in the bottom three, wow. and uh, and they you know one year ago Everton were in the bottom three. And the game which had put them in the bottom three was against Burnley, and they lost 1-0 at Burnley. And 10 of the players, 10, who played that day, were involved in the game when they beat Brighton to go back to the top of the table 10 days ago. So what's the difference? And it's quite clear, you know, you've got 10 players the same who played, who beat Brighton. The difference is Ancelotti, isn't it? He's mm. he is. There's you know. I mean, he is a great manager. There's obviously no doubt, and and he's made a great difference there. And and it's it's uh, you know a very impressive difference he's made. Yeah, uh, Andy. I mean, clearly Goodison is is buzzing at the moment, isn't it? Because you've done some super business in 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 the in the window in the summer. I mean, it's 
have they have they really closed uh, have they closed the gap where are everton right now do you think in in kind of you know they've made such a wonderful start they clearly go into this game you know um as potential favorites where are they sort of kind of uh, in the bigger picture over the course of the season do you think they've just taken a huge leap forward you know i agree with everything that dave said said there you know listen let's start with the manager it it is not rocket science it is not any great sort of conundrum for a club owner is you employ the best manager you possibly can. Mm. Um, and that's what they did with, with Carlo Ancelotti. It's as simple as that. You know, I'm not sure I digress, but you know, Manchester United probably didn't go down that route. And it's just, it's just not, it's a, it's a no brainer to a certain extent, you know, Ancelotti um, is proven. And also bear in mind, Ancelotti would not have come to Goodison Park had he not had the promise of serious financial backing, had he not had the guarantees that he'd go out and get players that he wanted. And that's exactly what happened. You know, that's exactly what happened in the sanding of Hammers, in the sanding of Alan, and in the sanding of Decore. And I don't think I can remember for a while, certainly not with Everton, but not with many clubs, how a, a, a trio of signings like that can actually lift the club, can actually turn the club into a forward-thinking club. I'm talking about on the field, you know, last season. That that, that team that, that Dave mentions at the start of last season, no, it was negative. It, the, the midfield was, you know, would look sideways, would look backwards. You know, he's he's now got players who are looking forward all the time. Um, he's got Calvaloon, obviously, in the form of his life, and it just transforms the mood. It transforms the mood around the whole place. You know, suddenly people are buying into it. I mean, Lucas Dini, for example, you know, not too long ago, um, you know, early last season, you know, all, all the talk was, you know, well, where was he going to go? You know, I'm, I'm sure some of it was probably coming from his camp. All of a sudden he's bought into it and he's being talked about as one of the best players outside the top six. And the whole mood of the team has been lifted by the signings and by Ancelotti himself. You know, they really have made enormous strides forward. Listen, it is only four league games, you know, and obviously Saturday will be an acid test. They'll be lifted not only by their own form, they'll be lifted by what happened at Villa Park um, um, the other day. And and so they, they are, but you know, Ancelotti is... You know he's not around to to sort of have top six as a as an ambition. You know a guy a, a guy who's you know you know a guy who's won a double here by the way in in this country. And a guy with his Champions League pedigree, with his with his record, isn't around to you know to scramble after Europa League place. He will genuinely think he will look at maybe the the weaknesses that have been shown, the unexpected weaknesses that have been, have been shown by Liverpool in one game, whether that's a blip or not certainly by Manchester City in a, in a couple of games. And then he will look at the likes of Arsenal, Spurs, Manchester United, and he'll think, you know, we are as good as these. And we are, they will think that we are as good as, as those teams. You know, would you, mm. how would you separate Everton from Spurs or Everton from Manchester United or Everton from from, from Arsenal? I don't think you, you, you possibly would at the moment. So, you know, this is a great opportunity for them. Um, you know, maybe there's not enough enough depth, but then again, Players who have been who've been sidelined, get, players who've been relegated, like Gilfie Sigurdsson, like Tom Davis. You know, the idea is then when they get the chance, when through injury, like they like they did um, the other day against I think it was Brighton. You know, they then step up. They're then inspired by these guys. They've got a challenge ahead of them. They're not just getting into the team. And so, yeah, it's hugely promising. And I say a big test on on Saturday. But you know, you wouldn't. Strangely enough, you know, despite. 
obviously look Bill's overwhelming superiority in terms of a record. I don't think you'd, you'd be you'd be a brave man to, to convincingly say either way this one. No, no, it's a very tight call. The one thing that obviously stands out, Matt, is that basically Liverpool go into this, don't they, on the back of their last fixture. A remarkable scoreline, Aston Villa, which prompts the question, what sort of reaction are we going to get? What do you think the reaction will be? Will it be, you know, determined to prove the point? Well, I think there'll be just relief that they're not facing the greatest player in the country, Jack Grealish, again. Um, now, now. But, uh, but, uh, um, I, I think you're bound to see a reaction. That sort of mentality mm. doesn't... You don't get to a Champions League final, lose it, and then come back and win it without having that sort of mentality. You don't finally get over the line, just miss out on the league, and then come back and win it without that sort of mentality either. I just think it's great because... Um, I, I don't like to mention this much, but I'm a little bit younger than you guys. Um, and in the, my football's formative years, Everton-Liverpool was the biggest uh, fixture in the calendar um, for the, in that period in the mid-80s if Liverpool weren't winning the title Everton were and I just think it's great to see a Merseyside derby that's worthy of the name again because that when I yeah, when I was a youngster many moons ago that was the game uh, and I'm just looking forward to watching it um, with, with all of its permutations Yeah, no, sure D- Dave, I was just just going to sort of come back to you on Liverpool if, if I may it's just the, the one thing I mean I love Joe Gomez as a player I think he's absolutely terrific on his you know on his day he's, he's a definite clear starter for Liverpool and indeed England you, you know is he is he a cause of concern is Liverpool's defence generally a bit of a cause for concern or you, you know was that Villa thing a blip um <laughs> For me, the, the one major cause of concern for Liverpool is goalkeeper. Mm. Alisson, Alisson has been outstanding, there's no doubt, and he came in and made a huge difference to that team. But he's injured. He gets injured a lot. Last season, he missed, I think it was uh, 18 games in total. And actually, he would have missed more because he was injured again when the lockdown came and that allowed him the chance to get fit. Um, and... They struggled a little last season without him. In in the first 10 games, he missed. um, And Adrian came in and he did all right. He did did okay. He played pretty well, but he made some mistakes. And and it was all a little bit um, frantic at the back for Liverpool. Alisson came back, settled things down as he had done the season before. Uh, And in the full season, the season before, Liverpool had the best defence in the Premier League, the best defensive record in the Premier League by an absolute mile. Mm. And then when Alisson came back, again, things settled down. Um, And, and, you know, you can easily forget that Liverpool, before they played Villa, uh, and, you know, I hate to say this, Crossy, but they absolutely gave Arsenal a lesson in the Mm. game before they played Villa. Mm. Everyone was going on about Arsenal being these... You know, title challengers, how they were, how they were, you know, really up there now, and Arteta transformed them. And then Liverpool exposed that to see, say that they'd got quite a long way to go to get anywhere near the level. Um, and Liverpool had also done the same to Chelsea in the game before that. So, you know, Alisson was in goal for those two games. He's out against Villa, and you could see the first goal was a mistake by Adrian. And and the problem with that is, and it, you know, it's quite hard to, you know, to really dissect. And it's probably too harsh to put it on one player. But someone like Gomez, who you know, he's still a relatively young defender. Don't forget, 
when you don't have confidence, and you know, it's what I was saying about Pickford earlier, you don't have confidence what's going on behind you. You don't have the communication the same. You don't know when the keeper's going to come or when he's not going to. And you could see that against Villa. And there was one moment in that game, and pe- people were saying, oh, you know, you can't just blame Adrian. There was one moment where there was a cross, and um, he went to the far post, and I don't really remember it, to, 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 to collect it, but the Villa centre forward was standing yeah. in the middle of the goal, and he headed over. Mm. And Adrian, Adrian was like 10 mm. yards beyond him waiting for the ball. And you think, you know, that, that mm. is so bad that mm. the defenders are going to be thinking, what the hell is going on here? Now, Klopp resisted the chance to go out and get a loan signing in the, in the window, and he's, he's show, you know, shown faith in, in Adrian. I think he had to because the, the people out there he could get, you know, there was talk about Butland or the Croatia keeper who's, who's, who's um, currently uh, not, not with a club. But, you know, the level of that, they're probably no better than Adrian. And so he's better showing confidence in him and saying, well, look, you did these 10 games last season. But for me, it affects, it affects everything around him. Gomez, absolutely, but Van Dijk too. Mm. And, and, and um, Matt was joking about um, Grealish schooling Van Dijk, but you know, Van Dijk didn't look confident from the very start of that game. And, and for me, there's only one reason. And, and it's, you know, it's a problem. And it's, and, and, Alisson could be out for another six weeks. Wow. So that could be a big problem for Liverpool. Yeah, just standing up for the goalkeepers' union. I just, I just <laughs> <laughs> obviously being the England press team goalkeeper, but, um, but uh, long standing. But I just, um, I, I, I just felt, I think it's so, it's so difficult for a, for, for a number two, particularly if you've been a long standing number one. I think, the, you know, your number two goalkeeper is a long term number two. Is it sort of almost a different animal, if you know what I mean? Mm. Because your, your your mindset is, well, I'm going to train hard. This is my job. This is my role at the club. If you suddenly, you, you know, suddenly go from playing, and I think he was a very good, consistent goalkeeper at Premier League level for, for West Ham. And then suddenly he's number two and going to play the odd game here or there. I think it's a really, it's a different uh, concept. And it's difficult, I think, to clearly he's not in the same league as Alisson. Please don't get me wrong. But I also think that basically it's going to be difficult to dip in and out. And so I think it's a... It, it is, it is no. tough, Crossy. You're absolutely right. And, and, and I don't want to seem to be criticising him no. so much because it, because it is like an almost impossible job coming in for such a dominant number one keeper. But... Alice, Adrian is very different to Alison. What Alison actually does a lot of the time is make things look easy by doing mm. it, you know, very simply. And he, he doesn't actually do the spectacular very often, Alison. He just gets his angles right. He always seems to make the right decisions. And when he's fit, he, you know, you can tell that, you know, everything is confident with him. Adrian, it, it, West Ham let him go in the end. You know, if, if people forget that. It, it wasn't as if Liverpool went and signed him from, from West Ham. He, he, he was a free agent and, and because he, his consistency had gone there and he, you know, he's always been a, a keeper who makes some great saves and he's, you know, and he's, he's fairly flamboyant, but he's never been one who's comes to get crosses. He's never been one that, mass, you know, organises the defence and, and, and sort of controls everything. So you're putting in a very different keeper anyway. 
and 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 a, very, a keeper that crucially the defence is is just they're used to a very different style, and I and I think it it makes it makes a a, a big difference, uh, and and you know. And it's going to be a problem. It will always be a problem for Liverpool, no matter who is their number two. But mm. this is going to be a problem for them. And maybe this is the opening that the rivals need at the top of the table, you know, because Liverpool looked like they were going to go and dominate again and everybody else is having every other club at the top, apart from Everton, have had problems. But Liverpool themselves now have a problem and it'd be interesting to see how they deal with it. Yeah. Guys, I'm going to go round you all. Very quick fire score prediction, please. Dave, starting with you. Uh, well, I'm going to go with a, a draw, a 1-1 one, one draw. Oh, that fence in the back of your garden. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, fair it enough. It tells us the game at Goodison is virtually always a draw. It really yeah, is. Yeah, no, so. sure, sure. Andy? I'm going Everton 3-1. Wow. Uh, I mean, I say, I'm only going on, 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 on what I've seen in my own eyes um, most recently, um, and I saw Liverpool at Villa, um, and I watched Everton um, on the TV, and... On that form, I'm going Everton 3-1. Yeah. No, I, I was unfair in being rather flippant, actually, when I said they've got a chance for a change. They do have much more than a chance. They have a genuine chance, don't they? Matt, what do you think? Um, I'm with uh, David. I think that uh, it's going to be a draw, but uh, the way they're defending at the moment, Liverpool, I think it's going to have to be 2 all. Right, fair enough. A- Andy, I was just going to touch on another <laughs> huge game this weekend. Man City, <laughs> Arsenal. I just, you know, probably not looking at such details as the side derby, but it- it equally, you know, where did Man City finish after the transfer window? Are they stronger? Are they better? And Arsenal, you know, blimey, as, as, as no one will let us forget, you know, they made a dramatic deadline day signing, Thomas <laughs> Partey. Where does that put Arteta's revolution, do you think? Well, it gives it a boost, John, doesn't it? I mean, it, it gives it a boost in the sense that, that, you know, they got the backing. They went out and got the man that they've been after for some considerable time. You know, and I don't think many of us thought they'd get over the line, and they did. So I think that gives them a huge boost. That's Manchester City. Listen, time will tell. I saw I saw um, Ruben Diaz um, play against Leeds when he did okay, um, and, and he might well be a very good addition to the squad. As for Nathan Ake and Ferran Torres, um, Torres showed glimpses um, of, of why Guardiola rates him so highly um, and why Spain rates him highly. And uh, again, time will tell on on, on that one. I, I personally look at the overall pitch with Manchester City and what happened the transfer window. And people forget that they, you know, they, they lost a world-class player in David Silva. They lost a world-class player, and uh, it, irrelevant to whether he was injured or not last season, they lost a world-class player truly world-class player in Leroy Sané. So you're losing Sané and David Silva and you're bringing Ake, Diaz and Torres. So have they improved? I don't think they've particularly improved, no. But then they're, they're very good any, anyway. Um, I think it's quite a big game for them. Probably no Kevin De Bruyne by the sounds of it. Mm. Obviously he came off in that England game, you know, and seems to have got um, a little aggravation. Maybe it's just the fact that he's played quite a lot of games in a short space of time. Um, so no, overall, I'm not sure City have improved spectacularly. Or, or probably just stood still as far as as far as I, I can see, but they're still very very good, and I still think they'll probably have too much for Arsenal. I thought City were good at Leeds, you know. I mean, for twenty five mm-hmm. minutes, that was as good as I've seen any team play this season. Um, but what they did, in the same way that they did, although not quite, as, didn't back, backfire so spectacularly, is that when they went one 0 up, they couldn't go two 0 up, they couldn't go three 0 up, um, like they probably did it many times over the last you know two or three seasons, and that cost them. But um, they were very good for 25 minutes, you know, and I, I say I would I, I would think they'd have too much for Arsenal this Saturday. 
Yeah. Matt, where, where do you think Arsenal are? Do you think they're top four um, now after signing Thomas Partey? Well, one of the seven clubs in the top four. It's <laughs> so hard to choose now. I think there are a lot better candidates for that top four. Mm. But now you've got to put factor Everton in. Yeah. Uh, Spurs look with Gareth Bale, which I'm sure we'll talk about soon. They look strong again. Um, and Chelsea, Manchester United. Do you know what it's going to be? The, if the title race goes becomes a one-horse race again, which yeah, hopefully it won't do, that's going to be an intriguing battle because there's so many Champions League-worthy teams now fighting for those top four places. Mm. Um, I quite quietly fancy Arsenal. I think they'll do enough. Uh, they're, they're good flat-track bullies. Um, we'll win. Will be there's always a backhanded compliment with you and I. No, 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 it's no because that is key to, to it's, it. Doesn't win you titles, but it gets you in the Champions League. If you beat all the teams, you know that aren't those European contenders, that gets you a long way up the table. And then beyond that, you've got to start beating the top teams to become champions. And I think Arsenal can do that first half really well in there, particularly at the Emirates. That uh, they'll get a lot of points. So I definitely think they'll be strong contenders for that top four. Whether they get over the line, I just think that's going to be a, an absolute bum fight at the end of the season. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree with that. Dave, Dave, as Matt alluded to there, you, you know, Gareth Bale could be his weekend this weekend. Let, let, let's see. I mean, you know, Gareth Bale on fitness is always a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a moot point, isn't it? Well, what, do you, what do you think the Premier League is going to get from Gareth Bale because let's be honest it's been heralded and lauded as an absolute superstar signing I'm incredibly excited by it I must say but do you share that enthusiasm for Bale and his return? Well yeah I do actually yeah. I mean he is a superstar there's no doubt about it he's played at the very top of the game and 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 been the best player you know alongside one of the all-time greats at Real Madrid so it, it, it he, he is a top player, but, you know, he's, as you say, his injury record has been woeful. How much of that was due, due to his circumstance at, at Real Madrid, I, I, I honestly don't know. If, if you get the Wales bail, then I think he will. He will uh, definitely, you know, improve Spurs and contribute a lot to them. And he's a match winner, isn't he? The, you know, mm. there's no doubt. I don't know what if he's got if he does play this weekend. I'm not quite sure what you'd expect from him because how long is it since he played? It's about seven years, isn't it? Something like that. <laughs> but he, I mean, he's literally he hasn't played for such a long time. So, since he's got the overhead kick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's, he's only played a handful of games since then, and most of them are <laughs> Wales. I mean, fully enough, bringing that up, that that's the player that he is. He, he yeah, comes yeah. on in a Champions League final and he's man of the match. You know, he's like. He, he is that good and, and I absolutely love him I watched him a lot playing for Wales um, and, and uh, he, he makes a massive difference he, he essentially took um, he, 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 he took Wales to a to European Championship semi-final now they, they, they had some very good players don't get me wrong but you know he was probably the difference on that run so you know that's how good he is and mm. and and, and I am absolutely delighted he's come to the back to the Premier League because it, it makes our it makes our league it makes the you know, our job more exciting it makes our league a better one you know and and let's just hope he 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 does have a good run now with injuries and he's motivated and I think the two might go together you know if he's motivated then maybe the injuries won't be such a big issue for him. Yeah, I completely agree with that, but I'm not sure 
that Andy does subscribe to that view. Do you, Andy? I'm not sure. I don't. I'm not mm. completely convinced that you're buying into the Gareth Bale um, um, hype. Are you? <laughs> well, maybe, maybe not. No, well, listen, I, I, I agree that he's absolutely, you know, world class player. Um, and, and and you know, I, I probably I'm I'm immensely looking forward to seeing him. Um, I'm looking forward to immensely seeing to seeing him play. Um, it, it'll be quite ironic, won't it? That, you know, the Tottenham have just wallop Manchester United 6-1 and then Jose Marino has to find a way into his team for, for Gareth Bale who says you know, hasn't played um, an awful lot of football um, yeah listen I, I, I mean I, I don't really have any anything but um, admiration for what he's done at Real Madrid never and, and I was always of the opinion no I think listen it doesn't matter if you last just never mind that he's won four Champions Leagues four Champions League medals and never mind that he's won, you know, a couple of La Ligas. I mean, the, the bottom line is, is that to last as, as, a, as a big name, foreign import to the Bernabeu, to last seven years is an achievement in itself, a grand yeah. achievement. And that's why I think, I'm a little bit, you know, for him to have seen how his career there, unlikely as it probably seemed, would have been, you know, I think a real sort of feather in his cap. But he hasn't worked out. He's come back. Um and as I say, I, I mean, I think Gareth Bale um, firing on all cylinders, you know, can only be an asset to Spurs. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Listen, do I think he's going to hit the ground running and make a big difference straight away? Well, no. I think it will take him a long time. Um, it'll take him a while. And I'll be interested to see the dynamic between him and the manager, you know, to see if he fits into how Jose Mourinho wants him to play. You know, that's the thing. I think at this stage of his career, Gareth Bale isn't going to be overly... Um, enthusiastic about non-stop pressing or tracking back you know I, I think he, he will see himself as a, as a bit of a you know even subconsciously a bit of a Galactico in that team you know and, and will will want to be you know up there alongside Kane um, so it'll be just interesting to see how, how that goes between Jose and Gareth Bale um, whether or not it was, it was totally Marino signing I'm not sure so no, no I, think, I, think, I think I'm really looking forward to it but I still think it's full of unknowns let's put it that way yeah, no, it's a good point. I mean, we should place on record here. Gareth Bale is, is if you judge it on medals and success, the greatest British export of all yeah. time. So let's place that right yes, there. Absolutely. But um, Matt, I'm going to come on to you because I think, you know, we probably um, t- towards the end of this, I think we're going to look at, you know, the sort of kind of almost the football politics dominating this week, the, you know, the pay-per-view issue, the project big picture any chance of fans returning. So let's start with that, that, that pay-per-view issue. Where do, you, where do you stand on that, Matt? Is that, a, is, is that a good thing? 14.95 on top of already sky-high subscriptions. If you're coming at it from a club point of view, it's an opportunity for fans who are locked out to, to, to pay to see a game that they wouldn't already see. How do you see it? Um, do you know, under different circumstances, I can understand the clubs uh, charging that sort of money for premium sports content because we've got to get real in the 21st century. We pay for films. We pay for premium entertainment. Uh, you pay extra. You can't expect it all free to air. That changed back end of the last century. Um, you know, some people don't want it, in which case they don't want to pay for it. So to expect everyone to swallow up the price on a free-to-air sort of subscription is a nonsense. And, and when you look at what the championship clubs are charging um, for, for their streams, which are far lower production values and far lower quality by their own 
definition, then 14.95, they've clearly looked at it and said, that's a reasonable marketing point. The problem comes is that they're foisting it on fans. Well, not foisting it. They're giving fans, making fans pay that amount of money, which is still less than actually going to the game, which is the only other way of watching the game, you know, previously. Um, but they're doing it at a time when nobody's got any money. Uh, and it, it's a shame because the Premier League clubs don't need that money quite as badly as perhaps some of their supporters do. And it would have been a nice gesture for them, as they did at the end of last season, to say, come on, it's difficult times. We get, we've get, we got a good will um, behind us in terms of the government helping us get games back on to try and lift the nation. Uh, so let's give back to the nation some sort of entertainment um, at a reduced cost, if not free, um, uh, and you know, play the game, uh, you know, build, you know, key into the, re- the collective spirit. And uh, they've missed that opportunity. If, if it was just an ordinary season and going forward, if we were going to have so many games as part of the Sky subscription and you could watch the rest for fourteen ninety five, I think that's an absolute bargain because, you know, there's no other way of watching them um, under normal circumstances. But, but yeah, I think they've, they've played a really bad PR game this, on this occasion, even if what they're trying to do is justifiable in the long term. Yeah. Talking of PR games, Dave, project big picture. <laughs> I mean, you know, let's be clear here. You know, Liverpool, Man United are clearly on board with it. I think the other four are, but perhaps not so willing to put their heads above the parapet. EFL chairman Rick Parry, you know, heavily, heavily involved. And you've got to say, why wouldn't he be? Because the EFL facing such dire circumstances. Where are we now, do you think? And, and you know, the, the, the kind of backlash, has that, has that surprised you? Because there's been some people on board with it, some people on board with bits of it, and some people so anti it, aren't they? You know, what, what have you made of the Ferrari over, over the last few days? Well, I mean, I'm not surprised in the slightest at the backlash because, because when you looked at the, uh, the fine detail of what was being proposed, it was... It was quite clearly a, a, a move. People have described it as a power grab. I, I mean, I think they have the power anyway, so it's, mm. it seems a bit of a nonsense to me to call it a power grab, but it, it, it was a move to getting more control. And the, there were a couple of key elements to it. One, one, obviously, was the reducing the games so that it gave the big clubs the option of having more games elsewhere, i.e. the Champions League and perhaps more pre-season, which is getting very lucrative. The, the second thing, and, and which went slightly under the radar, but which is, which is the absolute key to, to what you know, the likes of Liverpool and Manchester United in particular want, was the, the floating the idea of the, uh, of the eight matches being, uh, being delivered to the clubs to, to screen themselves. Now, let, I mean, we could talk about this all day, but just very quickly look at that. If you're saying eight matches, you mean eight home games, mm. because obviously you control your home game. If it's eight home games, which home games are you going to choose as a club to make money from? You're obviously going to choose the big games. So it would, if we take Liverpool, it would be the, 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 the other big five, if you like, those games, plus Everton, that's six, and then two more games, which they would probably, hopefully, want to choose if they were going to be winning something or something like that. But so, essentially, 
what you were doing is taking the Premier League off the table for for you know for broadcasters because all the other clubs will do the same. Their home games, City will have Manchester United, they'll have Liverpool, etc. So those big games no longer are available for Sky or BT or whoever. And then, therefore, what is the value of the package? And that's the reason why it was immediately thrown out because all the other Premier League clubs outside, really, the big six could see that their income was going to be absolutely decimated because, yeah, they get their own eight home games and they could, you know, maybe screen, you know, Liverpool, Manchester United, etc. But they're not going to get the big money that that the likes of Liverpool and and Manchester United get. There's been another story which I've been covering this week, and it's been uh, there. The, and and, it, and it, it actually looks like that there's there's it could well go ahead. And Liverpool have been approached by a, a, a an investment fund which is co-chaired by Billy Bean, who's of Moneyball fame. And actually, another uh, a, a billionaire um, investment fund uh, um, banker, shall we call him? Um, and and um, they they have uh, want to invest in sports in particular, and essentially in European football. Now, the the um, the billionaire he has a background in uh, amongst many other things in in helping the new york yankees set up their own uh, regional tv company where they broadcast their own games um fsg who own liverpool they already broadcast the red sox mm. games so they know the value of, of broadcasting your own matches and that's the biggest attraction, and it always has been, why there are so many Americans investing in, in, in the Premier League, because they can see that if they ever get to that nirvana of controlling their broadcasting rights to their own games, they could make far more money than even the Premier League now makes in selling those games worldwide, far more money. Mm. And they become so much more powerful. Now, clearly, Liverpool and Manchester United are the two biggest, and they would probably be able to earn far more money doing that than even the other, the other big four. And I think that's why, as you say, they're a little more lukewarm, the other big four. They can see the benefits, but they could also see Manchester United and Liverpool actually moving away from them, given not only their attraction worldwide, but the expertise that they're that that the the owners have in selling football in selling rights to to broadcasting the games that that's the key to all of this and that's why it was kicked out absolutely immediately but it won't go away now that that's that's what they want and that's what they will keep pressing for and eventually they'll find a way of of, mm. of, of moving towards that yeah and andy i must say i think on, on on the back of that it's been very interesting i think subsequently isn't it that basically the premier league you know, have confirmed that they're, they're, they're looking at a strategic review. They insist that was already underway. Let's be honest, that's got a new emphasis now. By the back door, by this exploding, the timing is probably bad for Rick Barron in the NFL, if you like. Yeah. But uh, are they effectively, ultimately, getting what they set out to to achieve? Are the EFL getting out what they said? No, no, no. I think that, you know, Project Big Picture gang, if you like. Well, in a sense, John, the, 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 I think, you know, it clearly was 
you know, a stalking horse. Um, as, as Dave has just said there very eloquently and finished off with, with, with the crux of the matter is that this will not go away now. You know, this will, you know, when, when, when I remember, you know, tell me a week ago, don't forget, and I remember saying to you at Wembley, um, from two meters apart, um, hmm. I remember discussing with you, asking you, why would, why, I, the thing that I couldn't understand is how did the, you know, this is obviously a very detailed plan put forward, but how did these Liverpool and Manchester United, and if, if we say the other four sort of big six, how did they ever think? I could never get my head around the idea they could ever think that the other 14 clubs would, would buy into it. Mm. I mean, talk about Turkey's vote for Christmas, you know, an 18-team Premier League and a big six in total power. Then that just, you know, I looked and thought, well, the, the, you know, I'm sure the EFL will love this. You know, and, and sure enough, the majority did, understandably. You know, for small clubs, you know, my local club down the road, Crow Alexandra, you know, this is a guarantee of money that, that they've never had before. You know, there, there will be there'll be club chairmen up and down the EFL, up and down the country, who'll be gutted that this is now off the table. Listen, okay, there's a pledge of a £50 million grant loan, whatever it may be, to, to League One, League Two, which would be very welcome. But... This was clearly uh, for them a golden ticket, basically. You know, and, mm. and as again, as Dave says, you know, I, I spoke to club chairman and I said, "Well, aren't you worried about the big six getting more power?" And they're saying the big six are in control anyway. What is the difference? It doesn't make any difference to the chairman of Accrington Stanley whether the big six have got power or not. So that was irrelevant. But then looking at it, I thought, well, either a they must have sounded out other clubs, clubs such as Everton, West Ham, those who are getting special status. And they must have been sounded them out and were promised support. But then, then how about the other clubs? And it just did not make any sense. You know, it, as detailed as it was, it didn't make any sense that, you know, how was this going to get voted through? And sure enough, it wasn't. However, what it has done is put the issue on the table, mm. you know, and a strategic review will include a review of how, the, the, you know, the next broadcast deal is going to be, is going to be negotiated. And that is the key to it. Let's, let's that is the starting point that is when they wanted the big picture project big picture to start was at the start of, of the next TV deal which I think is 22-23 isn't it and that now that's going to be the position you know that the Liverpool United have got that on the table now you know there's no way that the broadcast deal in its current guise in its current form will, will be repeated again you know these clubs will just will just simply not simply not go for that you know it's already been you know it's already been tickled in terms of the um, percentage of international rights that goes to the bigger clubs and it'll just get, and, and it'll be skewed more in their favour next time around. And I think essentially that's what they want. You know, and it's, it, essentially that is on the table now. The TV deal, broadcast rights are, are on the table and that's where Liverpool and United wanted it. Listen, would they have would they have been happy for the whole thing to go through? Yeah. Did they ever think it was going to go through? Well, they couldn't possibly have thought it was ever going to go through because there, there was no way they were going to get the enough of the other 14 clubs to vote for it. It's out there now, though, isn't it? You know, it is out there, and you know things will change. And no matter what happens, you can be sure whatever strategic review comes up with, whatever it comes up with, whatever solutions, whatever plans, then the big six clubs will benefit from it. There's no doubt about that, because they won't stand for anything else. No, Matt, is it, is it a partial victory for, for uh, Project Big Picture or the big six? Or, or, or is it has it been kicked out? I'm struggling to I'm tr- struggling to decide, frankly. <laughs> I, I think it's a limited victory, but but not much of one because when you look at 
what the uh, Premier League are now offering, 50 million, compared to what Parry was offering, 250 million, you get a ballpark figure of what the price of that power meant to Liverpool and Manchester United. They were willing to give up 200 million to get that sort of control over the Premier League. And unless you know, people start within the, the game, start giving them that power, that they've got nothing else really to bargain with apart from goodwill. Uh, uh, and all it's done is it's perhaps made it a bit more relevant. And for a week, we've all we've been talking about is bailouts for the EFL. And that's great because the Premier League did need to kick up the backside because they've gradually slid away from their empty promises back in March and April to help everybody out. Um, and something desperately needs to be done before the next payroll, probably, um, at the end of the month. So in that sense, it's a victory. But in any real sense, yeah, I, I don't think so because it's left Rick Parry as somebody that the Premier League don't really want to deal with, but the champion of the EFL. So that's going to be awkward. Um, and it just highlighted the mess that football's in at the moment under its current governance. Um, and putting power into even fewer hands would just be a disaster. So... Um, we need some rad- radical rethinking, but luckily Gary Neville's going to sort us all out this afternoon, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, so I'm told. I'm looking for. I'm looking forward to that. I'm just going to finish with a quick discussion on the crowds. Big issue here, basically, and obviously, you know, we're having further restrictions uh, this week. You know, so should we be t- should we be talking about fans coming back in? Is it right for fans to be back in? Have the ballet got it wrong? Are we right to put on squeeze concerts or, or is, is basically football got it wrong? What do we think, guys, starting with you, Dave? Well, I mean, the, the, there seems no way. I mean, I'm, I'm actually here in Liverpool now and, mm. and, you know, we're in lockdown here, essentially. And, and uh, you know, there's, a, there's a, no night time at all now <laughs> in Liverpool. And, it, 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 you know, it would, it would seem inconceivable to me to... To, to introduce those measures, but then say, yeah, we can have, you know, even 20,000 at a game or whatever, or, you know, it just, it, it doesn't seem right. But, I mean, it, it's a huge issue because the clubs themselves were promised by the government mm. that by October there would be fans back in stadiums and, and they've been kind of banking on it and they've already lost. I mean, it's well over a billion pounds now the Premier League themselves have lost. Uh, in in revenue from match days alone, and 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 obviously the longer that continues, it's going to be considerably more. And and they're all budgeted, you know, years in advance on the the money that's coming in, and it, and it's not coming in. And 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 you know, if it goes on much longer, there's going to be a massive crisis in football, and, and clubs will go to the wall. There's no doubt. Certainly down, you know, down the the, the leagues a little bit. There's going to be clubs who are who are desperate and 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 will will go to the wall unless they get some form of backing but in all honesty you know sitting here in liverpool i can't see how you can have people in in football grounds at the moment and i can't see why how you can have concerts either uh, or mm. ballet or whatever it's just it doesn't make any sense with the the levels of infection currently around and but it's just, let's face it, it, it is typical of this government that has absolutely no sense whatsoever and nothing with them makes any sense. And, and, and all the time they approach this pandemic, as they have done, then we're going to be in these ridiculous situations mm. where, where nothing makes sense and, and it prolongs everything and we're in a mess. And, you know, I can actually not see fans coming back 
until maybe next season now. I think that, you know, that's how bad this government have put us in that situation. Mm. Andy, see it the same way? Yeah, I, I, I do, John. You know, I thought it was, you know, I, I was thinking when I got back in the early hours of this morning from Wembley um, and I was having a look at some highlights from around Europe and Italy Holland game, you know, took place in front of fans in Bergamo, you know, and I remember when, you know, that part of Italy was held up as, as being one of the worst hits mm. and it was sort of, we looked at it from the, in this country, we thought, well, you know, thank goodness we're not going to be like that, you know, because, we're, you know, we're going to deal with it better and we're going to, you know, and just shows how, how wrong we were in the management of this this crisis and, and now they've got fans back and as much as our newspaper, the Daily Mirror, um, myself and my column, other columnists have said to the government, listen, you know, Brian Reid, for example, has been, um, has, has, has said this, you know, we can get fans back in safely, the work that's been done. Listen, Dave goes to Anfield and we all go to different grounds. There's actually, you know, there's actually infrastructure there that you can see ready for the return of fans. And, and, and yes, so I couldn't see why that couldn't happen, you know, a month ago or so. Um, at the start of the season. Now, it's quite clear that we can't put Liverpool into lockdown, you know, this tier three. You can't put Manchester into tier three, which inevitably, at any time now, even when I'm, even as I'm speaking, it's probably going into tier three. We can't impose these restrictions and then say, yeah, come on, let's everyone go to a football match, no matter how socially distant they are. And the and the argument which is, you know, which you hear every, every, every two minutes is, oh, well, they can have people in the Royal Albert Hall, they can have people at the O2. Um, you know, in, in the end, it becomes a spurious one because the fact of the matter is they shouldn't be having those, you know. So mm. it, the, the, the sort of two wrongs don't make a right type of argument, really, you're coming from. it Just because they are doing that doesn't mean that the football should. Um, it's a lot of whataboutery, as they say. The bottom line is, is the, the, these restrictions on major cities like Liverpool and Manchester are, 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 are so harsh that... that you can't countenance the idea of having people inside Anfield or Old Trafford or or the Etihad to watch a game or Goodison Park, and they're only going to get. We, we all know they're only going to get more stringent nationwide. Mm. So I think for now, the left fans in campaign, you know, basically not not ditched, but certainly put on on a back burner until we find out exactly what's going to happen. Listen, there could be a circuit breakout of two weeks, mm. you know, or three weeks, and in that case. It's not going to happen for that time anyway, as Dave says. I mean, I would be more hopeful that maybe the turn of the year rather than the end of the season. But that is a optimistic point of view. Yeah, Matt. Matt, what do you think? Matt, sorry, yeah, I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad after an hour that I found something to agree with Andy on. Um, <laughs> it's, don't mention Jack Grealish. <laughs> um, at, at further down the pyramid, I think people walking up to their mm. local national league game. Yeah. Uh, socially distanced, standing socially, crikey, some of the some of the games I've been to at that level, it's hard not to socially distance because there's so few fans in. I think that needs to be encouraged to keep the lifeblood going. But the trouble is at the top end, the Premier League worked really hard to make their stadiums safe places. But, but stadium, new stadiums like Tottenham make no bones about being a public transport venue that there isn't any parking. So all those fans, any fans that arrive, have got to arrive on tubes, buses, um, you know, trains, uh, and they're going to be massive COVID hotspots. The 
if even if the pubs nearby aren't open afterwards, there'll be street parties uh, with people going in buying drinks uh, because you want to celebrate a win with your mates, uh, and that whole ethos needs to change completely. And you, before we can start. Um, inviting fans back because in other walks of life that's not acceptable so I don't think football can be made an exception at the top level but what I would say is lower down I think more work can be done to perhaps allow people to go and support their local club mm. Matt if you if you think that Tottenham White Hart Lane is a public transport venue blimey public transport really has got problems hey, um, there you, you go that's... anyway li- listen uh, I, I, on that note I, I'm, I'm going to wind up and say thanks so much indeed for, for, for joining us um, the three of you uh, uh, Andy Matt and our very special guest there, the, uh, the the Merseyside derby. Delighted to Dave Maddock um, has been with us as well to, to look back and look forward to the weekend. What an interesting week um, as ever. So thanks for joining us on the Football Digest podcast. Hope you've enjoyed it. Please uh, tune in again next week. Thank you. Thank you.